0: good morning. morning. It's great to be with you this morning. I, there's something irreplaceable about people coming together around this, this word of God that God has given us in the person of Jesus. And so I thank you for being, there's lots of other things we could be doing right now, but I appreciate you being here as the, the body of Christ itself is gathered together, knit together by the power and the presence of God's Holy spirit. So welcome. Uh, Question for you. I know that uh, this is kind of a sensitive area, so I'm going to use an example from uh, one of my past careers. Some of you know that uh, before I actually accepted this call to ministry, I tried everything to avoid doing anything with ministry. I've done a lot of different careers in my life, and one of those, happen to be in energy efficiency, analyzing, trying to understand how to make things more energy efficient and all that. And, And the point I'm going to get to is that even in the face of overwhelming evidence, we have a tendency as people to not believe, right? So one of the things we discovered about, especially with heating and cooling systems is, all right, if we want to make this thing as efficient as it possibly can be, then we need to be able to get the, either the hot air or the cold air from where it originates in the actual furnace or air conditioning system to where the people are living in the house. And so the way that that air goes to where it's supposed to go is through ductwork. And if, if you don't know what that is, you can look above your head and you kind of see these, these big pipes with these vents. Maybe in your house you know like, hey, this This is the the thing that the air comes out of. I can put my hand over it, and it's either hot or cold. That's that's ductwork. It's fed with these things that look just like pipes, metal pipes. And so what our job was is to try to figure out, well, is there a problem here? And our suspicion was... Well, if the air never actually makes it into the room that it's designed to go into, then it can't possibly be efficient. What if it's leaking out along the way? Because the metal pipes are just put together, and if there's no sealant, no way to seal the seams in that metal pipe, then the air just leaks out. Well, then we have an efficiency problem. And so we would deal with this all the time, and I I know this is gonna come as a shock to you, but because you can't see air, when we would tell contractors, This duct leakage is a problem. What do you suppose their response was? I don't believe it. I don't believe it. And so we had all these fancy digital instruments and we would measure the airflow and we would measure the pressure and we could give like a digital readout and we could show like, look, it is a problem. See, here it is. I don't believe it. Okay, well, there's a guy named Jim. He's my favorite. And so we're down in the basement we tested First of all, he stands there proudly and tells me, my ductwork doesn't leak. Interesting, Jim. I, I don't know how you've paused the laws of physics here in this basement, but somehow you've done it. So let's, let's take a look. And so we, we fired it up and, and we had all the digital equipment and we showed him. And of course, the response was, I don't believe it. Fine. So I said, well, we, we have one other option we can do to to visualize this a little bit better. Somehow we got a fog machine, and I said, we're gonna pump the ductwork full of fog, and then if we see it leaking out of these seams, then you'll be able to tell that this is actually happening, okay? He says to me, I bet you $200 right now, no, no fog will come out of those seams. Sounds good. Fired it up, did the thing. It looked like a bomb went off in the basement, right? It's just smoke everywhere. You can't see anything. And he's standing there looking and watching this fog come out of the seam in the pipe. And I say, you see that? And he says, yeah, I see it. But I still don't believe it. (laughs) Now, I don't know about you, but there are many things we could choose from today where we could say the same thing. Because maybe Pontius Pilate was onto something when he asked Jesus the famous question, what is truth? Because truth seems to be whatever I say it is, or whatever I want it to be. And if I'm presented with overwhelming evidence of something, somehow as people, you and I can often conclude, I still don't believe. I don't care what the evidence is, I I just don't believe it. I don't believe it. And so as we've gone through this journey, we're up to now, we're going to finish uh, John chapter 12 today. But on this journey, we've been together called Foundations through all of these circumstances where we've seen Jesus do these amazing things. I just want to bring to your attention some, just some of the things that we've talked about, that we've seen, that we've heard, that we've experienced together along this journey. In chapter two, Jesus, with nothing more than his word, turned water into wine. Not just a little bit of wine, but an abundance of wine. Over 150 plus gallons of wine. Lots and way more than anyone could drink at the party that he was at. Proving his abundant grace, his abundant mercy. And then in chapter four, we saw that he healed this royal official's son, he wasn't even there. He healed the official's son by just speaking a word and saying, your son will live. And he did. And then we moved on and we talked about uh, in chapter five, the healing at the pool. Remember there was a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, Jesus shows up. Anybody remember how he healed him? He looked at the man, asked, do you wanna be healed? Man says yes. And he just simply spoke the words, take up your mat and walk. And the man did exactly that and then got in all kinds of trouble for it. And then we made it to chapter six and Jesus, even though he had just a few little barley crackers and a couple of fish, somehow he fed tens of thousands of people. We know that it was more than 5,000 people. He spoke the food into existence. It didn't otherwise exist. And then we saw him give sight to a man that had been born blind. We saw that in chapter 9. And he, he rubbed some mud in the guy's eyes. And then his words were, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man did. And he could see. And then, kind of like for the, the capstone of these miracles, these, these signs, we saw in John chapter 11 that Jesus appears on the scene. There's been a man named Lazarus who's been dead and in the tomb for four days. And Jesus, just with his words, calls him out of the tomb. Lazarus, come out! And Lazarus comes out. So we've seen over and over and over and over again all of these different ways that the Lord has been working and, and the power of his word and what it actually accomplishes. It doesn't just talk about something. It actually does the thing, which is not like the words you and I have. We, we can talk about things. We can point to things. But the word of God, the word made flesh, who is Jesus, has the power to actually do what it says, And even in the midst of all of those things, all of those miracles, all of those signs, all of those wonders, and we know that that's just a fraction of what he was actually doing, because John tells us that at the end of the gospel, that if I were to write everything that he did, it would fill more books than the world could contain. And so even in the face of all of that overwhelming evidence, we still find people that don't believe. We still find people that don't believe. And we might be tempted to think, well, yeah, okay, fine. But that was then, and this is now. Nothing's changed. Our condition still to this day is that when we are confronted with the overwhelming evidence of who Jesus is, what he's done, whenever it's preached and proclaimed to us, we still have many folks, maybe you're one of them, that are here right now today that say, I I don't believe it, I don't believe. That's the problem that we're gonna be talking about today because I've been telling you for the last several weeks that we're getting to the end of Jesus' public ministry. Remember his public ministry was, give or take, three years long, okay? And so now we're coming to a close of that period of time at the end of John chapter 12 and we're gonna hear the final words of Jesus public ministry. And then, after that, there's a big shift. And then he's just dealing with his disciples, a very small group of people, instead of doing things out in the public. And so there is a, there is a big shift underway here. And so in some ways, the end of John chapter 12 is like a summary of everything that's happened up to that point. And it has a very specific purpose, has a very specific purpose for you and for me, not just for them, but for us today. And that's to confront us with the reality is, Jesus has told you and shown you over and over and over again, who he is. He has made claims over and over again, and he's had signs, wonders, miracles that themselves don't save us, but point to him as the savior. And each of us then is faced with, well, how do we respond to that? Are we a are we an an unbeliever? Do we say no thanks? Are we a sort of believer where uh, we read the terms and conditions and and try to have Jesus on our terms? Sort of believer, or are we a true believer? That's what's happening here at the end of John chapter 12. Jesus is calling this out, and we're going to get to that. But before we do, let's just pray together here and ask the Lord to be with us and to to reveal truth to us and for him to do his mighty work in each of us that only he can do. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing your body together. Lord, we do not believe it is by accident that anyone who is here today is here today. We believe that it's the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit that draws us together, centered upon you, with you as our foundation. So, Lord, we ask in these moments that we have together that you be glorified and that it be your word that is preached and proclaimed in here, not my words. Hide me behind the cross, Lord, and speak to all of us with your voice, with your words And call us into this new life that you have for us. That's only possible in you, Jesus. We thank you and we praise you for who you are. We ask you to do a mighty work amongst us today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to look specifically at verses 37 to 50. And I'm going to read this all the way through. And then we're going to go back and just kind of get some uh, points here that help us understand what Jesus is really calling each of us to deal with today, right here in this place, right? So 37, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. So if we look at the very beginning of this verse 37, we see again, when we think back to all that these folks have either personally experienced, in some cases participated in, and certainly had heard about, they still do not believe. Look at verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. And it's at the heart of this kind of rejection is just a denial of the evidence of the truth. And you and I might say, well, that, in this particular case, these people were, were walking around and, and participating and being with the physical Jesus, the Word made flesh. You know, for us, it's different. We don't have a physical Jesus to follow around. And so, again, if I can't see it, then I just don't believe it. Well, okay, But God presents himself to us in so many other ways that point us to the truth of who he is and what he's done. But we even then, when we see the things, we still say, I don't believe. There's got to be another explanation. And if you don't believe me, if you're here today, that means you woke up this morning. It's a miracle. The breath in your lungs, you didn't create this. It was created. And you can either go down this road of assuming that, well, over billions and billions of years, all of these things lined up absolutely perfectly, just by chance, so that in the end, we could all just kind of be this smash up of molecules and atoms, and it produced this thing called life. Now, I don't know about you, but it takes a lot more faith, and I'm using that in quotes, faith to believe in that than it does to just accept the truth of what Jesus claims about Himself. Nothing, Ethan just said it earlier. Nothing that is created was created that wasn't through Jesus. Jesus was the method of creation. God spoke the word, the world into existence by speaking. Jesus is that word who was then made flesh. Now you and I get a chance to hear those words of Jesus over and over again as God draws us to himself. We see evidence all the time, all over the place, that God is exactly who he says he is. Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. We can see the evidence of God's creation, God's sovereignty in everything. But will we believe that God is who he says he is, or will we try to make up some other explanation? One of my seminary classes, this, this uh, colleague of mine who just openly said in one of, the, one of our courses, like, well, I believe, I believe in God, but I'm really not sure about Jesus. Okay, talk more about that. Say more about that. All right, well, I really find God in the Mississippi River. Okay, so again, we have the mighty Mississippi River. That's wonderful. You can go, and when we all see these, these amazing things, these landscapes, whether it's big, tall mountains or, or big, deep valleys or, or the mighty Mississippi itself. We can see God's glory. We can see God's creative efforts on display, and that's amazing. But the river itself has no power to do for us what we know that only God can do. In other words, even the mighty Mississippi does not have the power and does not contain the water necessary to wash away the sin of the world. That's only Jesus. That's only Jesus. And so when we look at the mighty Mississippi and we realize that points us back to Jesus, that's great. But when we mistake the created things, for the creator, we get into all kinds of trouble. And Paul warns us about this very thing in Romans chapter one, verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Okay? So we see, we have this temptation. We can't get away from this temptation. We can see the evidence. We can see what is proving and pointing us to know and trust that the claims of God in Jesus are true and right. And yet, we can turn our back on that and we can say, no, I, uh, I don't want that. I don't want to accept that. I will not accept that. There's got to be another way. And, and look at verse 38, because I don't know if you picked up on this when we read this all the way through. But some of you might be saying, well, you just got done saying, John told me it's not my fault. We'll get to that. Look at verse 38. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now just stop there for just a second. This is Isaiah the prophet writing hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ ever came. But it says, he saw the glory of Jesus. He somehow was able, God revealed to him what was coming, what the plan uh, in Jesus had been before the foundation of the world. And so he knew what was happening and he knew that when that good news is being preached, it will shock the world. It will shock the world. And so this, this idea of how will it be presented? Well, yes, through signs and wonders, of course, but ultimately the truth is revealed in the word of God the word that was made flesh, who was ultimately rejected, crucified for our sin, not his sin, but didn't stay dead. Turns out Jesus was not a very good dead guy. He's raised again, and he invites you and I into new life with him. Isaiah could see this, and he said, all right, these amazing things that are presented to the world as evidence, will they hear them? Will they hear them? Will they believe them? But then he goes on and says, well, for this reason, they couldn't believe because he's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. So they neither can see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. And so right there, we try to create an escape hatch for ourselves and say, well, even if I wanted to believe, I can't believe because God is hardening my heart and he's not allowing me to see. I I want to challenge you on that. That is not what is going on. We participate in the hardening of our own hearts in the following way. Like, some of you know i play the drums all right that's great but uh when i do play the drums if i do with any sort of regularity uh i start getting calluses on my hands because the drumsticks. first i get blisters then later i get calluses now if if you play another instrument like a guitar or something like that you also know all about calluses right it develops over time or, or if you work a shovel yes calluses develop any kind of repeated physical activity that you use your hands for will eventually start developing these calluses. And what happens when you start to get the calluses? Well, it gets hard. And then because it's hard, you no longer have the pain anymore. You no longer have the feeling anymore because the callus stops that from happening. This is what happens with our hearts. When we hear, when we are confronted with the evidence of who Jesus is, time and time again, when we hear the good news of who Jesus is preached and proclaimed amongst us, as we're gathered together, if we reject and say no, then our hearts become harder and harder. It's harder for us to hear. It's harder for us to open our eyes and see the truth. Now, we experienced this, this same thing. If you go all the way back, we've talked about it before. It's been a long time. But if we looked all the way back to, to the book of Exodus and we saw how Moses continued to go to Pharaoh saying, let my people go, and God continued to send plagues. Did you notice that they were progressive in nature? Each one was worse than the one before. Till finally, Pharaoh says, you know, I give. But each time after those, it says, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Because when you turn your back on the truth of who God is, your heart becomes harder and harder. So you do become blind. Don't let that be you. Don't continue to reject and walk away from the truth of who Jesus is. So that's the first question today, right now, for you to wrestle with. Are you an unbeliever? Are you an unbeliever? Well, then we have what I mentioned earlier these sort of believers, sort of believers. And believe it or not, this particular group of people, the sort of believers, are the ones that Jesus is concerned about the most. He spends more time addressing sort of believers with more direct and uh, I would even call it arresting confrontations than any other group of people. Why is that? Because he doesn't want people to be lulled into thinking that they have faith, that they believe, that they trust, when that's not really the case. We have all kinds of reasons why we might be a sort of believer. Sometimes it's just we like to think of faith as something that's either clandestine or uh, covert in nature. Well, I, I, yes, I have faith, but I don't want to tell anybody about it. I just want to keep it to myself. So much so that even our own family might not know. Even our own friends might not know. Because it's just between me and God. Just between me and God. That is not what we see in terms of the action that faith is seen doing over and over again in scripture. This This is an active faith. It's not a dormant faith. It's not something that just is meant to be kept to ourselves. It's something that's meant to be proclaimed and shared with the world and each of us has this opportunity. Each of us has been given a sphere of influence. Each of us has been given a platform where we are either promoting and pointing people to Jesus or we're not. But the worst is when we think we are, when we really aren't. And we have all kinds of reasons for this. Uh, I'm concerned what other people might think about me. It's too big of a risk. I'm concerned that people will point and laugh and mock at me and say, oh, you just believe in fairy tales. Folks, they will. That's exactly what they will say. They will point. They will laugh at you. And yet, we stand strong in the faith, believing and trusting and knowing that through undeniable evidence, Jesus continues to come to us In one way or another. Matter of fact, I don't know if you, if you realize this, but all of the arguments that the Pharisees were having with Jesus over all of the things he was doing, nobody was questioning whether or not those miracles were happening. Nobody was questioning whether or not that was true. They were questioning, well, why is he doing this? Who does he think he is? Why is he getting in my way and disrupting my system? I want it this way. I don't want it that way. And you and I run into the same problems because we do the same thing. We say, well, I'm a believer, but, or I can accept and go along with Jesus to a point, but, right, and then we have all these little conditions and things that we put in place. We would prefer to have Jesus our way. And again, that is the Jesus of Burger King, not the Jesus of the gospel, okay? We don't have that luxury to pick and choose, like a spiritual buffet, what we like about Jesus and what we don't. We either believe or we don't. But this sort of belief is what troubles Jesus more than anything. And at the root of that, it really comes down to us being more concerned about the consequences of our faith to us rather than us being concerned about following Jesus. Remember last week we talked about what in your life do you give the most weight to? What is the most important thing in your life? What is the most, what is the, the biggest core piece of your identity? Is it something you say about yourself? Is, what the, is it what the world says about you? Mm-hmm. Or is it who Jesus says about you through his words? And what does he say? What does he say to you? He says, well, I did not come to condemn. I came to save, not just the world in a general general sense. I came to save you. And he says that to you right here, right now. Do you turn your back on him? Are you an unbeliever? Do you say, well, I'll take a flyer on it, but I really haven't made up my mind, but I kind of believe. Are you a sort of believer? Revelation, we talked a lot about John chapter three, verse 16, where Jesus is actually described as coming from God to save the world so that all who believe in him and call upon his name should not perish, but have eternal life. But look at what it says in Revelation chapter three, verse 16. We'll look at 15 and 16. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus seems to be fine with unbelievers, although I'm, of course it burdens his heart, but he knows that they know that they are unbelievers. He seems to be fine with true believers, but this middle group, people that think they're believers, that's the ones that he's really after. Is that, is that you today? I think it's pretty arresting to consider what uh, Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes into his Father's glory with the holy angels. And so I, I realize it's a tired and true phrase, but it's still very relevant here. If right now you're wondering, well, do I really believe or do I just say I believe? The encouragement I would have for you is check yourself before you wreck yourself, right? Because we have an amazing ability to convince ourselves of whatever the truth is that we want to believe rather than submitting to the truth of who Jesus is and continues to be revealed to us to be and is. So are you a sort of believer? But then, if you remember at the, at the end of our scripture last week, it says, Jesus went away and hid himself. Which I always think is, that's fun. It's hide and go seek with Jesus time. And so nobody knows where he is. So the, the, the first part of the, uh, the scripture for today is John's commentary on this, kind of explaining what's going on. And then all of a sudden, uh, Jesus burst back on the scene in verse 44. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only. But in the one who sent me, the one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into this world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. So again, we see this light and dark metaphor. We've seen this over and over again. This is the last time we see this in the Gospel of John. Because the entire time Jesus has been talking about, he is the light. He is revealing the truth. His claims are pointing us to where salvation truly comes from. And yet... Here we have many, many people who turn their back and reject him. We find our hope and our life, and we put our trust in anything other than God. And if we are looking for God anywhere other than Jesus, including the Mississippi River, then we are looking in all the wrong places. We are called to look upon Jesus knowing that he came as being sent by the Father to do what only God can do. He was God in the flesh. But he doesn't stop there. He gets more specific in verse 47. If anyone hears my words, again, we are talking about the words again. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them, at the last day. This whole idea of the words of Jesus is very, very important. In Mark chapter 13, it says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And so if that's true, if that's true that in in the end, the only thing that really truly matters is the words of Jesus, then we better know what they actually say, right? Specifically, what do they say about you and me? Well, he invites us to come into the light, the light of truth, to step out of the darkness, to turn our back on the sinful ways that we've rejected him in the past and turn toward him where he will come to us and save us. And what does he say? Instead of, I condemn you, he says, I forgive you. He says, I give you my peace. He says, come to me if you are burdened and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Are we doing that? Are we turning to Jesus? And then we have to go beyond that. And we have to say, if we do say yes, I'm a true believer. What does that mean in terms of how we live our lives? Is that reflected in the way that we live? Do other people identify us as a true believer? Not because it's all about us, but because our lives are a life of worship that point to the one who did create us and the the one who does save us and the one who does sustain us. Are you a true believer? Because if you are, then things are different. Paul says in Ephesians chapter five, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And then when we wonder, well, how, how does that happen now? If Jesus is not physically right here, right now, if I can't see him, then how do I know I can trust him? How do I know that he is who he says he is? Well, he gives us his word and his words are what never pass away. All the signs, all the wonders, all the miracles, all of that is temporary, but his words are eternal and his words come to you now and say, you are my beloved. You are my beloved. And when we share that with other people, we see this in Acts chapter 10, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. He has authority over death itself. We saw it when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, and he calls you out of the tomb right now. Come out. Turn to him. Don't reject him. Turn to him and walk in the light. And sometimes when we think, well, what does it mean to share my faith? I don't understand. we, We tend to kind of wrap it up and we think of it as, well, it feels like a sales presentation. And I want to free you of ever imagining that that's what it is. I am not standing up here trying to get you. What's it going to take to get you into a truckload of Jesus today? That is not what is happening. What is happening here is when the word of Jesus is proclaimed and the truth about him coming, sent by God, God's one and only son, who took the sin of the world upon himself, was crucified for our transgressions and our shortcomings, was buried and three days later rose again in victory. Then when we identify with his death and his resurrection, then we have his life. We can walk in the light of that life, no matter what we do, no matter who we are, no matter what our circumstances are. When we are true believers, that light emanates from us. We don't hide it. We let that light shine. And so lest you think that this is about selling somebody on Jesus, we are called to be his witnesses. We are called to share our testimony so that other people are drawn to Jesus, not because of how great of a job you might do sharing it, but because God uses those words to draw people to himself. They're not our words, just like Jesus says here. They're not his words. They're the father's words. Those are the same words we use as we proclaim the good news about Jesus. And so we kind of tend to make this too much about a transaction. Like we're trying to get somebody to make a decision. Would you make a decision? We gotta make a decision. Folks, there is a personal responsibility. We do have the ability to respond or to reject Jesus, right? We can turn to him or we can turn away from him. I'm not denying that. But this is what I want you to focus on. I want you to realize that in Jesus, God makes his choice crystal clear. He chooses You, chooses you. How do you respond to him? How do you respond to him? Well, how do we know he chooses us? Well, on your way in, you received a little communion cup. And in the top, we've got a little wafer. And we also have the juice. And this is just one way, the evidence that we can have in our hand of the promise of Jesus. Because on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus got together his disciples and they had a meal. And at that meal, after he gave thanks, Jesus broke the bread. By the way, I I need to tell you something real quick because I hear cellophane going. Don't be quick to take this communion today. So you can get yourself ready, but we're gonna have a response time here in a minute. And I want you to take some time and don't be in a rush. Spend some time with the Lord today. So feel free to get it ready, but don't don't do it yet. So after giving thanks, Jesus broke the bread and he gave the bread to his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body just given for you. So when we have the wafer, we, we remember the promise of Jesus that he didn't just make to those folks, but he makes to us too that he's given his body for us. And then likewise, after supper, he took the cup and after giving thanks, he passed it around. He said, take drink, every one of you. This cup is the new covenant or the new Testament in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And so right now in our hands, we hold evidence, a reminder of the promise of who Jesus is what he came to do and what he has accomplished for us. You are his beloved and he chooses you. How will you respond? Okay, so we're in just a moment, we're gonna have the worship team come out and they're gonna sing a song and and I don't want you to feel like you need to sing it. Let them sing this song over you as a prayer. And during that time, when you feel it's right, when you feel the nudge of the Lord, eat the wafer, drink the juice, and celebrate the goodness of God. And as we do that together as a community, we're gonna have a a couple folks up here on the sides of the stage. If you want prayer for anything going on in your life right now, and and you would like somebody to pray with you, come on up. We'll have people here that will pray with you as well. And uh, then after that, we'll close out our service. All right, so let's pray as we get ready. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you do not leave us orphaned, but instead you lead and guide us and restore us and sustain us. idea. Thank you. Lord, we're just so thankful for the time that we've had together. We're thankful for these moments where we know it's by your spirit alone and by your word alone that you raise the dead. You turn us from our sinful ways turn us toward you. We thank you for making your face shine upon us. Lord, now in these next moments, would you come to us by the power of your spirit and work in our hearts and do the work that only you can do. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.